Jesus, we pray that you would use this word to make us more like you. Jesus, all glory be to you. All glory be to you, Christ our King. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Well, it, it is great to be in worship with you all this morning. I want to be sure to welcome all of you who are watching on the podcast. Great to have you with us. Again, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. In case I haven't met you before, my name is Daniel Triller. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Always love being with you. All right. Well, this morning, we are wrapping up our sermon series. It's been called Resume Versus Eulogy, The Virtues That Matter. And we've been talking about how resume virtues are exactly that. They're the ones you put on your resume, your accomplishments, wealth, power, and fame. And then there are the eulogy virtues, the one that we hope people will say about us during our eulogies. The virtues that we've been talking about these past few weeks, perseverance, loyalty, courage, honor. And now, you and I know that our culture tends to value the resume virtues more highly than the eulogy ones, but here's what's really interesting. More and more companies these days are looking for eulogy virtues as they look for people to join their team. You know, for example, Google. Google has five hiring attributes, and a couple are the ones that you would expect. You know, expertise in your particular field, good leadership skills. I mean, nothing new there. But they're also looking for something that you probably wouldn't expect. They're looking for humility. They're looking for people who are confident in their skills and ability who will step up and contribute, but at the same time are also self-aware enough to know when to step back and defer to coworkers who have better ideas than them. One of Google's big, biggest red flags, I read this in an article, is when people come in and commit the fundamental attribution error. That is, if they succeeded in the past, it's because, well, I'm a genius. And if they failed in the past, it's because, well, somebody was an idiot. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Now here's what you need to know. Google is hiring, and they're looking for humility. And so as we wrap up our sermon series, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about humility. And let me set things up here. Here's where we're going. We've got to work through three questions. Humility. What is it? How do I know if I have it? And how do I get more of it? What is it? How do I know if I have it? And how do I get more of it? All right, let's start from the top. What is humility anyway? You know, I think we can all agree that humility is definitely not the track star who continually boasts about how great of a runner he is, or the rising CEO about, about how great of a leader she is, or Kyle Harmon telling everybody about what an incredible musician he is. And I'm so sorry, Kyle, I needed a specific example there. That is not humility. But it's also true that humility is not when the track star says they're not good at running or the CEO says they're not a very good leader or Kyle telling everybody about what a terrible musician he is. That's not humility either. Humility isn't boasting about yourself or thinking less of yourself. Humility is something altogether different. And so here's the definition we're going with today. It comes from famous Christian author C.S. Lewis. He says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Let that sink in. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. Because humility isn't us lying to ourselves and those around us about the areas in which we're strong. I mean, no, God has gifted 
all of us in different ways. And one of the signs of a healthy Christian is being able to finish the sentence, I'm good at blank. I mean, it's good for us to know what our gifts are so that we can serve God and those around us. And so instead, humility is just thinking about yourself less. And here's been a helpful way for me to think about it. Think about when you're looking through an old photo album. I mean, what's the first thing you're looking for as you go through those photos? I mean, you're looking for yourself, right? You're thinking, how do I look? How's my hair? And we end up saying stuff like, look at how terrible I look in that photo. But humility sees the bigger picture. It sees all the other people, the beautiful backdrop, the incredible scenery. And so here is the essence of humility. Humility doesn't say, look at how terrible I look. Humility says, look at how beautiful that sunset is. Look at how beautiful my people are. Look at what God is doing in this photo. All glory be to God. Humility is thinking about yourself less. You know, it's seeing the bigger picture. It's seeing beyond yourself. And this is what this passage from Paul captures so beautifully. I mean, Paul is seeing this bigger picture. And now you might be thinking, wait, I don't remember that passage saying anything about humility. And that's exactly the point. I mean, humble people don't describe themselves as humble. But yet, Paul here captures the very heart of what humility is. And here's the situation that Paul is in when he writes this. Paul started this Corinthian church that he is writing to, but then later a guy named Apollos had come in and helped move things forward. And so for some folks, Paul was essentially their pastor, and for other folks, Apollos was. And you'd think this is a good thing, two guys on the same team preaching the same message, reaching more people, but instead the people have become divided because of it. And instead of being thankful for having a relationship with either one of them, the guys are boasting that their pastor is better than the other and that they're a better Christian or spiritual leader based on who pastored them. It's just become pride. And so Paul's got to decide what his move is here. Will he build himself up? You know, will he speak poorly of Apollos and make the guy look bad? You know, does Paul get insecure and start thinking less of himself? Well, here again is some of what he says. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul sees himself as a servant. He's a co-worker in God's service. And he's simply doing the job that he was called to do. He's an instrument that God is using for his glory. But yet at the same time, Paul's not thinking less of himself here. You know, in fact, he's later going to say that he laid down this foundation as an expert builder. He knows his strengths, but he just doesn't really care too much about all that. I mean, he's thinking about himself less. Paul did his part, Apollos did his, but ultimately God is the one who makes things grow. Paul takes the whole argument and essentially says, guys, seriously, who cares? Paul doesn't think of himself less or Paul doesn't think less of himself, he's just thinking of himself less. And now we'll come back to this passage, but we've got to move on to our second question, and it's this one. How do I know if I have it? That is, what does humility look like on the ground level in real life? And this is a challenging one, because humility is, for the most part, an inner virtue. You know, it's a reflection of our heart. 
But nevertheless, here are three diagnostic questions that are going to help us assess humility. And the first is this, humility cares more about the job getting done than who gets it done. It cares more about the goal than who gets the credit. And that is Paul, yeah? I mean, Paul doesn't care who gets the credit, and he certainly doesn't need it from the Corinthians, largely because Paul knows that God will reward him according to his labor. I mean, Paul wants to see churches grow, he wants to see people follow Jesus, and he is perfectly content with whomever God wants to use to accomplish the task. You know, for me, one of the most powerful lessons in humility that I've ever learned, it happened years ago in college, we would go on these spring break mission trips to the Dominican Republic, and in the mornings we would go to the villages and do various construction projects, and one of our projects that week was to lay a cement foundation. And so that first day we started working, and the Dominican men started helping as well. Got about halfway done that first day. And we come back the next morning, and the whole thing's done. And we all had this moment where we're thinking to ourselves, but wait, that was our job to do. That was my cement foundation to lay. That was my experience to have. And as we talked through it later that day, I think we all thought that the real act of humility was lowering ourselves, giving up our spring break, flying across the country, serving the poor. But all it really was was pride. You know, we wanted that moment, that sense of accomplishment. That was my job to do. But it was about the men and women and families in that village. It was about the flourishing of their community. It wasn't about us. I mean, humility cares more about the job getting done than who gets it done. I mean, it cares more about the end goal than who gets the credit. And this village now had another cement foundation to build a home on, and glory be to God. And you know, as you think about your work or your home life, do you find yourself caring more about the end goal or who gets the credit? I heard someone sum it up just about perfectly recently when they said this, hey, we're all for God's name being lifted up, as long as my name gets lifted up a little bit too. <laughs> but that's not humility. Humility cares more about the job getting done than who gets it done. The second is this, humility receives feedback that is both criticism and praise well. You know, think about all the feedback you're getting on a daily basis, both good and bad, from your boss, your kids, your spouse. Some of you are getting feedback right now as your spouse elbows you and says, I hope you're listening right now. I've been reading this book. It's called Thanks for the Feedback. And this book talks about how one of our biggest problems we make is that we confuse coaching feedback from evaluation feedback. Coaching feedback is in, hey, here's a suggestion on how you can get better in this area. From evaluation feedback, as in brass tacks, here's how, you, here's how you're doing in this area. Here's where you stand. And the problem is when people receive coaching feedback in their insecurity, they often translate it immediately as evaluation feedback. Here's an example. Your boss tells you about an app that's going to help you with your time management, and you think, he doesn't think I can do my job well. Or your friend tells you about a faster way to get to the airport, and you think, they don't think I know my way around this city. And when we over-personalize the feedback and act like it's an affront to our very identity, you know, we take coaching feedback, translate it as evaluation feedback, and essentially, we're just getting insecure, and we start thinking less of ourselves. 
And so we end up having moments like this one. Your boss tells you that you need to improve your organizational skills, and so on the drive home, you think through your boss's numerous inadequacies and decide to pull over and write them down so you can keep them organized. <laughs> but humility sees coaching feedback as just that. It's coaching. I mean, humility says, as a servant of God, how might God be using this person in my life to help me grow so that I can serve God and others all the more? Because the irony is if a person is willing to go to the trouble to give you coaching feedback, the real truth is chances are that they really believe in you and see your potential. And real quick, what about positive feedback? What's our move there? Well, we know that it's probably best that we don't savor the moment for too long, but it's also not helpful to flat out deny it and just say something like, you know, that wasn't very good. I mean, have you ever tried to compliment someone who does that? I mean, it's so frustrating. Really, I think the simplest thing we can do is say thank you. Thank you. All right, we've got to move on to our last question. This one might be the most important, this last diagnostic question, and it's this. Humility celebrates other people's gifts and success. And here's my favorite example of this. It's professional basketball player Steph Curry. He had an uncharacteristic moment the other night, but I'm sticking with this story. He plays <laughs> basketball for the Golden State Warriors, named most valuable player the last two years. He's on a record-breaking team. And kids love Steph Curry. And he's even reached the pinnacle of athletic fame by being mom famous. That is so famous, even your average suburban mom knows who he is. And here's what happens. Steph Curry gets injured a couple months ago, has to sit out a few games. And this is always one of the most fascinating subplots in sports. When a star athlete goes down, does he celebrate his teammate's success? Is he even interested in the game? I mean, what's his body language like? Because pride's, one of pride's most classic lines is, I hope they do worse without me. But here's what happens. Steph Curry is sitting on the bench and his team is blowing the other team out so badly they got to call timeout. And what's Steph doing? Well, he's smiling. He's laughing. He's high-fiving. He's celebrating his teammates. And best of all, he's dancing. And that, that is the essence of humility. Because I think there's this unspoken assumption that humble people have to be stoic or unemotional or maybe even boring. But no, 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 no. Humble people dance. Humble people celebrate other people's gifts and success. I mean, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And that's what Paul did. I mean, when Paul was gone, Apollos stepped up and filled in. And that's not making Paul bitter. That's making Paul thankful. I mean, Paul gives Apollos his rightful due and celebrates the work that he did. After all, Paul planted, Paul swatted, but God was the one who made things grow. I mean, you all, are we able to joyfully celebrate other people's gifts and success? You know, at work, are you able to celebrate when other people lay out better business, or business proposals than you do and say, glory be to God? You know, for those who are in the band, are you able to celebrate those who are better musicians than you and say, glory be to God? You know, for fathers, you're able to celebrate other dads who have better parenting moments than you and say, glory be to God. 
You know, for me as a pastor, am I able to celebrate when other pastors give better sermons than I do and say, glory be to God? It's one of the truest tests of humility. Humble people dance. And now, short disclaimer here. Some of you may be thinking, okay, but what about this? I'm 45 and I desperately want to get married. You really want me to celebrate the kid who gets married straight out of college? (laughs) Or my buddy and I both went after the same job and he got it. You really want me to throw him a party? And that is a great question. And I think there are some times in life where we're just not ready to dance yet. And I think that's okay. Emotionally, you just may not be there. And that's okay. I mean, yes, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we mourn with those who are mourning. But that doesn't mean that we have to mourn in ways that takes away from other people who are celebrating. And I hope that balance makes sense. All right. Two, our final question. You might be asking, how do I get more of it? That is, where does humility even come from? And it's kind of a misleading question because the thing is you don't get humility by going directly after humility. You've got to be aiming at something else. And it's, it's similar to happiness that way. You can't go directly after happiness if you want to get happiness. Your focus has to be elsewhere. And so this may sound a little trite and a little too simplistic, but this is the answer I keep coming back to. If you get the gospel, you get humility. It's that simple and that profound. If you get the gospel, you get humility. And now I'm not saying that non-Christians can't be humble. I mean, sure they can. We all know people who are humble who don't know Jesus. But the thing is, the more you get the gospel, the more and more it gets to your heart, the more and more humble we become. Because think about some of the fundamental truths at the heart of the gospel. You know, the gospel says that our identity isn't based on what we've done, but what Jesus has done for us. I mean, the gospel says that there is no condemnation, guilt, or shame based on what we've done, but what he's done. I mean, the gospel says that our success and accomplishments aren't simply our own doing, but that it's God's doing, God's power. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. It's God who makes things grow. I mean, the gospel, at its very core, sees our sins, sees our shortcomings, sees our failures, and fixes our eyes on Jesus. It fixes our eyes on Jesus, who was himself the ultimate example of humility, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, who says to his father the night before he dies, not my will, but your will. Not me, but you. You know, if you get the gospel, you get humility. And here's the truth that might make us most humble. You know, when it's all said and done, when those final credits roll, there's only gonna be one name. One name that stands above all the others. And it's Jesus. I mean, you all, we can put our names on trophies. We can dedicate buildings after people. We can build statues that pigeons everywhere will flock to. (laughs) I mean, we can have our titles before our names. We can have our letters after our names. We can have our fancy business cards. We can ensure that our grandkids know about their great, great, great grandma whose distant cousin came over on the Mayflower. And oh my goodness, grandpa, can I please go back to playing my video game now? 
You know, in the end, there's only going to be one name, and his name is Jesus. That every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you get the gospel, you get humility. And ultimately, it's freeing, right? I mean, it's exhausting when you're always connecting every single experience, every single conversation, every single moment back to yourself when you're always asking the question, how does this make me look? I mean, humility frees us to serve others and celebrate and capture the moment. We win when we're humble, and the people around us win too. I mean, people like being around humble people. Google knows they're more fun to work with. With humility, everybody wins. You win, and the people around us win too. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And so as we wrap up this sermon series, I think it's only fitting that we finish with the eulogy. And it's the eulogy of an incredible, incredible woman, and her name was Sid Lee. Roughly 25 years ago, Sid and her husband, Skip, they were living in Mercer Island and felt called to move to the heart of the U District, where they could spend more time serving college students. And everybody thought they were crazy, but they packed up their bags and moved anyway. And a few years later, the Lees and a group of friends started Vision 16. It was a housing organization that sought to build community centered around Jesus. And it's where I lived during college, and it was instrumental to my faith. And now as for Sid, Sid herself, she had the gift of hospitality, made some of the best meals I've ever had. She created a sense of home and belonging for college students desperately in need of it. She was, had a sharp mind. She was well-read had beauty, wealth, and influence, but she never used those things in a way to make others feel inferior. She simply looked at what she had and shared it with others. And above all, she loved Jesus dearly. She read the Bible cover to cover every year, kept a prayer journal filled with names, names, and more names, people she was praying for. And after a long struggle with cancer, Sid passed away last month. And her memorial service was filled with college students, people in their 20s and 30s, people that she had touched along the way. And during one of those eulogies, one of the speakers shared a line that Sid would so often say, my life for yours, my life for yours in all things. And folks, I think C.S. Lewis has some competition because that might be the best definition of humility yet. My life for yours in all things. It's what Jesus said. It's what Jesus did. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ, his rule and reign forevermore. All glory be to Christ. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are the ultimate example of humility. Lord, make us more humble. Help us to keep our eyes on you, fix our eyes on you. To you be the glory, Jesus. Amen.